0: More yeah, energy? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Science of Feeding the World podcast with me, <laughs> This week we are joined by author and environmental activist Mark Linus in what was a most vibrant and energising uh, and wide varied uh, conversation. What did we talk about, guys?
1: Well, we talked about conspiracy theories, we talked about climate change, we talked about Mark's new book, In Stores Now.
0: Uh... <laughs> and we learnt uh, what film made Mark cry last.
1: And we learnt that Mark is a big fan of Dua Lipa. You are listening to a podcast, but what is that
2: podcast?
1: It's the science of feeding the world.
2: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the science of feeding the world. I'm Hannah McGrath.
0: I'm Gary Furrin.
1: And I'm Alex Dye.
2: And this week, we are here with author and environmentalist extraordinaire, Mark <laughs> Linus.
3: Hello. Extraordinaire, <laughs> huh? <Hi>. Well, think-
2: <laughs> well I've
3: heard many things in my time, but extraordinaire is a new one. Thank you for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm just here for the ego, Um So to kick this week's podcast off, we've got a nice, easy question for you, which is how do you think agriculture can meet climate goals? <sighs>
0: Nice easy small question. Is
3: that a thesis or a, or or a book or what? <laughs> I mean, the thing is that agriculture plays both way, both ways on the climate issue, right? I mean, obviously, we need agriculture to feed ourselves, and without food, we don't last very long. Um, but agriculture primarily is a source of greenhouse gases um, through many different mechanisms: fertilizer use, manure, plowing up, you know, um, forests, and so on. Um, fires there's just so many different sources in agriculture which is why it's one of the really difficult nuts to crack in some ways well in fact in every way decarbonizing electricity is the easy bit right switch to mm. renewables nuclear zero carbon so sources all that kind of stuff yeah but agriculture is so complex and the, we're talking different kinds of gases from multiple different sources um, so it's going to be very difficult to to do something about that and, and also to make agriculture a uh, potentially a sequestering opportunity as well. So carbon mm. then being absorbed in soils and vegetation and things. So yeah, all of this stuff, each of these separate things needs a separate thesis. So I'm glad we've got 24 hours of this podcast because we should be able to just about <laughs> scratch
0: the surface. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat>
2: um, so I think one of the interesting things also is that um, not only is agriculture uh, contributor to climate change, but it is also affected by climate change as well?
3: Um, Yes, and in fact, that's something that um, I've done a lot of thinking and writing about recently um, for my new Six Degrees book, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about Mm -hmm. in great length, Um, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the most scary scenarios really as we ramp up warming this century involve the potential collapse of food production. And in my view, having Mm -hmm. reviewed a lot of the science on this, I think it could happen a lot earlier than many people think. Um, which is pretty scary, and in fact, that's probably the main concern for you know civilizational collapse. If you like conflict, refugee flows, um, state collapse. If you can't feed people, I mean, your uh, civilization starts to fragment within days, weeks. It's very quick. It's Ooh. much, much, very yeah, different yeah. in that sense to something like sea level rise, which is a process that takes decades, centuries to play out. Um, so, food production as uh, warming. Accelerates is, I think, one of the biggest concerns of all. Um, for several mechanisms, firstly, the sheer heat. I mean, it will become too hot in most of the current bread baskets of the world to continue to provide, you know, sustainable harvest over about one and a half, two degrees. And that goes for the U.S. corn belt, Eastern Europe, Australia. You can already see um, the, you know, big bread baskets of South America as well. I'm talking multiple crops here: rice, uh, you know, corn, maize, um, uh, uh, wheat. So really, the absolute key staples that sustain humanity. Uh, so there's, there's heat and the thermal tolerance thresholds of crops being breached. Also, droughts. So rainfall patterns shifting, a lot less water available for rain-fed agriculture. These things, I think, are huge, huge issues for climate. And by you know, if even if we had nothing else to worry about. We weren't bothered about the Arctic sea ice or the coral reefs or anything. This alone, the protection of humanity's food supplies, would be reason enough to need to urgently tackle the climate crisis.
2: So, one of the things that um, I know is quite controversial, but um, is in sort of the 2008 Arab Spring, there there are people who who look at associating the rise in the wheat price, or I, I think I think it was wheat, the right kind of rising food food prices, at least then being associated with kind of civil unrest. So is this the kind of concern that you're you're talking about in terms of what would happen if... Here's a nice yeah. bit of uh, sensationalism for the Science of Feeding <laughs> World podcast, but what would happen, you know, if we can't start... In your opinion, do you think would start happening if we can't get food?
3: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the bread riots uh, at the start of the Arab Spring were a, a, a certainly a factor, um, and that there's been papers published in PNAS and other journals about the influence of drought, long-term drought in the Middle Eastern area on the political destabilization that, you know, preceded the, and and was part of the Arab Spring. Um, And I think everyone's cautious about not assigning too much causality and saying climate change led to this political outcome, because obviously there's so many other different factors playing into that, but clearly it was one of them. and the fact that drought had destabilized and undermined uh, agricultural production in, in Syria is a particular case actually um, and there were millions of people on the move who had to go and you know camp outside cities and um, you know were really desperate desperately short of food and the government's lack of response i think was one of the ways that its own authority was undermined, and that then led to the certainly helped precipitate the uprising so you can see how those things play out in a food shortage scenario and it doesn't take very long and you get uh, complete political destabilization uh, very quickly and and, and across multiple countries potentially and across also the world I mean if you're talking about um, you know commodity traded food um, if you have a significant harvest collapse in one area well I mean things like commodity well I mean the big bulk staples like uh, like like wheat uh like corn maize uh, rice things like that um, and those are the those are what humanity depends on for for the majority of our calories, Bulk of calories. Our calories yeah. yeah. so the main calorific uh, needs of, of humanity and those are all traded internationally so you've got prices going up and down but if you get a big harvest collapse and this has happened due to heat waves and, and other factors you know countries stop exporting so the trade can dry up very quickly and that Tends to affect urban, the urban poor in developing countries first and foremost because they spend the bulk of their income on on food, which the rest of us don't, um, and they don't produce anything for themselves. They don't have any fallback because they're in an urban urban situation, and they have to spend money on food to support themselves. They can't grow their own.
0: So, so you've got uh, the new book, uh, Six Degrees of Climate Emergency. Is that is that right?
3: Uh, it's called Our Final the, um, Warning: uh, Six Degrees of uh, Our Climate. Our Yeah. It is that available. It was launched. It was <laughs> launched in the UK bookstores? on April the sixteenth, and the US uh, version will be out about the end of June. Oh, for that. Sorry, Gary. Go um,
0: so you, you said a moment ago that um, you know you were worried that some of the the kind of big impacts of climate change uh, would come a, a lot sooner than perhaps. Um, some of the forecasts that we've seen so far is it kind of during researching this book that you've come to think that um, What what is it that's made you feel that way
3: yeah I mean the process of of researching this book was the same as the the previous one which was to scour through the scientific literature and I'm talking mm. not just dozens but hundreds of journals across multiple dis- multiples of disciplines um, you know looking from I don't know geophysics glaciology food I mean so many different areas here which have got climate models and climate related predictions uh being published and piecing all that together into a degree by degree picture of of how uh, what our likely future is as the planet heats up so you know mm. it was a big spreadsheet really i had to put all the you know, if there's a paper on what happens in you know syria at two degrees it goes into that bit and if it's a on what happens in china at four it goes into that bit and then i wrote them all up into Mm. chapters and tried to make it uh readable as you can imagine no one's going to read a spreadsheet so (laughs) i had to kind of write them up into a kind of narrative (laughs) uh storyline type form so hopefully the science is, is is as accurate as as you could hope but it's also aimed to be to be readable and for a very general audience
2: so this idea then kind of we have a pressing climate emergency and we need to persuade people to take action. And if we take action sooner or if we take greater action, we can limit the degree of warming that we end up at. Is that that's, So that's kind of the, the premise. How do you find communicating science, which I... So I'm doing a PhD, I like science, and I can struggle to read papers quite often, you know, and trying to, to plough through them is one thing, simply reading that sheer volume, what kind of um, yeah, let's let's start with that. How the hell did you read that many papers and please teach me so I can do it for
3: <laughs> well, you don't you don't read the whole thing. I mean, I try and get beyond just the abstract because you know the methodology of all of these things is actually really important, as you'll know. Um, yeah, so yeah. oftentimes I find that the abstract sometimes overclaims, and you want to have a little look into the stats and see whether. You think really it's it's justified mm. by what the paper's doing. And you know, if there's a so there's a paleoclimate paper on what the temperature was of the Arctic Ocean in the Eocene fifty million years ago. You know, how yeah. do they know? There's no one there with thermometers. So the methodology is important, right? So there's some isotopic balance of some tiny uh, for foraminifera sea creature or something which has settled in the sediments at certain depth <laughs> and this this has to be then um tested via uh, mass spectrometry or something like that. So you have to understand enough to know what's going on to say, okay, well, I've got to then translate that and explain it to a general audience. You can't just do that from abstracts. So when I want mm-hmm. to tell a story about the methods that scientists use to piece together the climate of the distant past or uh, to to make projections for what might be happening in 2085, then you do need to understand how the science was was carried out. So that's why it took two and a half years. Oh. So <laughs> that's my mm. advice. Take two and a half years and do your literature review that way. <laughs>
2: I think I am. And I think that's probably what's pissing my supervisors off. Um, so uh, what you've just described, though, is like hugely complex. So I've got a mate doing a PhD in, as you were saying, these kind of little fossils in, in marine sediment. And I've tried to look at their posters and it's, it's it's hugely complex. And I've got, at the moment, two science degrees. How do you... Um, Find, you know, accessing that material? Are there things that people can do when they are telling science stories in papers that make them better or worse?
3: Uh, I think, I mean, I don't have. Because
2: there, there are always yeah. papers that are easier to read or worse to read, and, and, mm. and what's a good paper and what's a bad paper.
3: Sure. I mean, from your my bias is I prefer natural sciences to social sciences. I find the social sciences impossible to read and figure out and understand the value of to anything like the extent that I do with natural sciences. So that's my kind of inherent bias the other thing that assists me is not having any formal scientific training at all so i'm not then biased into a into a single discipline like alex if you're an entomologist it's all going to be about insects forevermore right mm-hmm. whereas for me exactly <laughs> pretty much uh, so whereas for me i can talk about glasses one minute and you know modeling the next and i'm i would say equally uncomfortable i mean i'm, I'm i i have i approach all of that with enough humility to know that it's not my area of expertise. So I have to really make an effort to to understand it properly, particularly if you then have the responsibility of communicating it to a mass audience. You've got to know you're getting your story right if you're going to do uh, not do a disservice to the scientists who've carried out the original research.
2: And so when you've kind of done the reading and you've got this really complex picture and you're kind of like, OK, so this is the, the narrative I, I want to say. This is the story we're we're, we're going to tell. How long do you spend thinking about the story and crafting that story because i think that's sometimes the thing that people don't realize about science communication is that you've got to think through the story more than just understanding this is how
3: the science yeah, works
1: it helps especially if you're talking to people who aren't from a scientific background i think that a narrative approach to it is quite a helpful tool well, right? narr-
3: the narrative <laughs> approach is the only thing that works for communication uh, I, I mean Ooh. you can I mean let's let's take the scientific paper. Even those are are narratives. So they start with, you know, what the idea basically what the idea was, what the method is, and then you know, what the results are, and then a kind of a bit of a discussion. So even that is telling a story, and that essential narrative arc is what you have to always use when you're writing mm-hmm. about science. And it, it operates in both the micro and the macro level. So each little each story within the three degree chapter about let's say there's one about food or one about glasses collapsing in the andes or something each one has to work as its own little story but then they all have to work collectively in a narrative arc in terms of how the book unfolds so that you want to actually you know when you start at the beginning you actually want to get to the end there's some reason there's some overall message which you're which you're seeing unspool as you read it
2: do you think scientists can do that
3: mostly no and that's why i'm in a job I mean, if, uh, if scientists were able to communicate their own research, there'd be, no re- there'd be no need for the likes of me. So I'm delighted that scientists mostly are hopeless communicators and writers because it keeps me in work. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. Keep being, keep being crap.
1: <laughs> I think that's the motto of our podcast. It is, really. basically,
0: yeah. <laughs> keep
1: being crap.
3: <laughs>
0: You mentioned just before um, we started recording, actually, just for the listeners, we were kind of off air, talking a little bit before the uh, podcast uh, about... Uh, it's behind, behind the, the scenes. scenes. There were some behind the scenes discussions. Uh, and you talked about the work you're kind of doing with Alliance for Science and kind of... You, you said the words kind of changing uh, tact a little bit and and looking more at misinformation more broadly than, than just the GMO misinformation that you've been looking at in the past. And I guess I kind of want to ask about that. But in the context of... Uh, what you'd said at the Oxford Farming Conference a couple of years back about, you talked a lot about polarization. And this is a a topic that I've been really interested in for a couple of years. Um, I don't think polarization is very good. Uh, It doesn't really help conversation, but there's a lot of it about. Um, I guess, first question, I guess, do you think polarization has, has gotten worse since then there was gm polarization now i I see kind of meat and versus vegan polarization lots of things within the kind of realm of agricultural science and everything related to that Uh, do you think it's gotten worse or better
3: i think that's a very difficult question to answer with any anything other than a kind of Mm. subjective evidence-free yeah (laughs) (laughs) how do you uh, how do you quantitatively measure something like polarization and in what fields are we talking about yeah so it tends to, we tend yeah, to yeah. feel that things are polarized that where we feel in strong disagreement with a group of other people, um, and I think mm. there's obviously a huge amount written about political polarization and particularly in the US and you know the extent to which this is a trend which is even threatening democracy, um, and I'm very focused on anti science uh, misinformation and the kind. You know, look at maybe not GMO Mm. so much uh, because I've spent too long talking about that, but maybe look at something like the anti-vaccination movement, Um, particularly in the context of this Mm. pandemic. Uh, And I've done a couple of stories on this for the Cornell Alliance for Science because I just find it, A, I find it fascinating that people can hold these views. You know, when we're in a pandemic situation where uh, vaccination is really our only hope to emerge from the coronavirus pandemic without potentially seeing millions of deaths um so why would you you know if your, your world view is such i mean it, it really comes down to conspiracy theorizing you have to believe that mm. there's a conspiracy of you know bill gates big pharma governments who um mm. to poison you or to somehow control you or affect your health to make you believe that the vaccines are you know are poisonous and shouldn't you shouldn't use them
2: so this this maybe is some so I know when you you were talking like when you share stuff online, you never share directly the misinformation itself. and I think that's quite a common thing that people on the internet are learning to do is that you don't feed the fire by increasing their reach or their engagement. but um, what do you think the motivations are behind the people sharing misinformation? Is it for financial gain? Or is it because they genuinely believe whether it's GMO, whether it's anti vaxxers whether it's five G masts and and whatever? What are their motivations, or is it a spectrum?
3: Yeah, I, I or should think, we not I care about that? Well, no, I think it's oh no, you must care. Understand your enemy, and <laughs> knowing what's motivating <laughs> the people who are at the at the root of these uh, conspiracy theories, is, I think is absolutely um, absolutely crucial. And I think some of them are actors and. Uh, peddling snake oil products. Um, people like, you know, Alex Jones of InfoWars, who's always yelling into his microphone. I mean, he's, he's an actor. He's not... Yeah. Uh, I don't think he <laughs> believes anything. I think... Uh, and every single... Every five minutes, he he takes a break to advertise his silver pills or whatever his latest quack yeah. cure is. And that's where these people make their money. A lot of the anti-vaxxers um, or the sort of natural health type people... But also make them, make their living from selling stuff online uh, which is you know not let's say to, to put it kindly not evidence based medicine um so there's a lot of that going on but i think there's also mm. clearly true believers out there i mean look at robert f kennedy junior you know the son of the great robert kennedy who was assassinated somebody who was a leading environmental lawyer you know had a huge following and was a, a you know a real a really authoritative and brilliant campaigner Has thrown his reputation away by going wholeheartedly into the anti vaccination um, rabbit hole. And now, his main, as far as I can tell, his only work is to run this children's health defense thing, which is all about spreading MMR, flu vaccine, autism, all of these kind of conspiracy theories. Um, I
1: suppose you could argue that goes right back to the start, though, because even Wakefield, where this all sort of began, he kind of threw away everything he had, all of the respect, all of the. All of his, um, you know, uh, what's the word? All his clout, all of his degrees. Yeah, all his way, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, favour of this kind of following. Yes, and I d- you don't know what happens with these people. Do they, do they essentially go mad? Or do they find themselves getting sucked bit by bit down a different path, which they're essentially trapped in? I mean, you could say for Wakefield, once he'd committed his uh, reputation to the MMR autism thesis... He couldn't then backpedal and say, whoops, I made a mistake. So he had to keep on digging. You did. And, you know, the the, <laughs> fact, the fact there was no evidence for it made that difficult. <laughs> he then had to end yeah. up where he is now, which is essentially peddling conspiracy theories to the far right across the United States. Mm.
0: Well, you were able to backpedal um, quite effectively and, oh, good, you good know, made a, a very... A big public statement, but but it's a good point. You know what's what's the difference? What is it that stops some people from doing this? Um, What 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 was that allowed you to make that step? You know how?
3: Well, you know Mm. I was quite conscious about it, about that being a potential career option. I could have become, (laughs) uh, you know, an anti-environmentalist because I had all of these when I when I did my big speech in I think it was 2013 at the first Oxford Farming Conference speech, saying I've changed my mind on GMOs. Uh, all of that stuff. I had all of these right-wing groups, um, the corporations, all of them beating a path to my door, saying, "Great, we want to host you. You know, we think what you're saying is amazing." And if I'd been amenable to that, that would have been that would have been me set up for life. I'd have gone down that route. And you could see some people who have, like Patrick Moore, who's one of these, who was an early co-founder yeah, yeah. of Greenpeace, went yeah. down that route, ended up taking money from every industry under the sun, and is now a dedicated climate denialist. Um, so know, you can see, that's why that, I, yeah. that's why I have this theory about people being bit by bit led down this path because it benefits them at each stage. Um, so I had some, mm. you know, and it's very enticing when you have people saying how brilliant you are and how much what you've said has, has meant to them, not to kind of start to play to that new audience that you've got. And I think that's what's happened mm. with Andrew Wakefield. He gets a new audience. It's very lucrative. He gets a huge amount of attention um, and if you're at all egotistical, which some of us are, um, that's very compelling as well. And then, and once you've gone down that line, you really can't go back. I mean, he can't, he can't turn around now and say, oh, I was wrong about vaccinations, it's over.
2: Given all of this, it's kind of, to me, it kind of looks like we need to communicate science um, with stories and we need to do it quite passionately to, to have individuals who are as perhaps compelling as the misinformationers or or that kind of thing. Is that something that you're trying to do then with your kind of books and your um, Alliance for Science at Cornell, those kinds of things? Is that where that's motivated? Or is that what's motivating your work?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm a shill for science. I I believe (laughs) that an evidence-based worldview is... Uh, well, uh, and the scientific method is a really, well, the only <laughs> really good way to solve the world's problems.
2: What about when science makes mistakes? How do you think we should deal with that? Because that's the other thing is that I kind of, I know that you've if you've read a thousand papers, realistically, some of them will make false conclusions, not because there's any malicious uh, activity behind that, but simply because statistics say that if you're 95% confident that something has happened because of the effect you're looking for and not because of random chance, it also means there's a 5% chance that that was, you know, purely Mm. random.
0: Five out of Um, every hundred papers you read are going to be... Yeah,
3: absolutely. And then there's this reproducibility crisis in science, which I think is absolutely real. Absolutely. Um, And I'm often quite aware when I see a paper, often in the big journals like Science and Nature, which have these, you know, very catchy headlines and findings, I often think, well, that's a bit ropey. You know, you think sort of one paper mm. syndrome and I'll wait a bit and see really whether this is backed up by future research. So I think you. I'm also quite sceptical when I'm reading um, stuff in the scientific literature that it's not going to be 100% accurate, that the <laughs> statistical methodologies are um, always open to question. It's just better than anything else. You can see this now with the, uh, you know, the big debate about hydroxychloroquine and some of the anti well, I mean, Trump saying I've got a gut feeling this works, you know. What's your gut feeling worth? That's what science is for. <laughs> you have to run a cl- clinical yeah, trial yeah. And, and have a control group and see whether there's a an impact in comparison from one group to the next. One has got a placebo, the other's got the drug. It's not, I say, it's not rocket science to have a horrible cliche, but I mean, that's how <laughs> it works. And if you don't have that, then you you're only you're back in the dark ages and you're running on gut hunches. So the good thing about science is it can self correct. You can have future research which shows that the original paper and the original theory got it wrong Uh, and that's that's what's great about it
2: so when i'm scrolling as perhaps you know i might do quite a bit um and i see something that i'm like this is wrong this is completely based in untrue facts how do you think individuals could deal with that
3: uh yeah no good point there's uh, have you? worth looking at the the conspiracist handbook by John Cook and Stefan Lewandowski, who've done a lot of work on to what extent you should debunk, how you should engage with um, myths and misinformation. Um, both of their expertise primarily has been on climate change uh, and climate the phenomenon of climate denialism and how to address that. So they've learned a lot in um, in that field. And while debunking is of mixed use because you can potentially give credibility and inflate and encourage these issues pre-bunking it seems is a really good idea so it's almost like a ironically like a vaccination that if people have heard Mm. that this is a dumb conspiracy theory before they come across it for the first time when some celebrity tweets or shares on instagram about 5g they already know it's a dumb conspiracy theory and they already know not to then get caught up in it or to share it further so it's Mm. a pre-bunking seems to be a really a really smart thing to do. And that does mean that you have to... So you do need to put information out there, tackling conspiracy theories, and to do that quickly and to do that credibly. Mm.
2: And I think the difficult thing then as a scientist is the, uh, is the speed of response. Because to know something, you have to take the time to look and investigate and really dig that. Or maybe you don't necessarily need to do that, but you feel like you need to do that you feel like you need to be more prepared and more um, knowledgeable. And I think that's something that perhaps the skill set of people who naturally do science are very attention to detail and um, quite often introverted because you've got to spend 20 hours a week in a lab on your own looking at counting beetles or something like Alex does. And to do that, you have a certain skill set because to be successful, that's what you kind of need. But then we're kind of also seeing that the moment in society – we need people who are responsive, shouting about the science in just a louder voice as the people who are kind of combating that. And I think that's something that the science skill set doesn't always support. No, and, and nor should it. I don't
3: like shouty scientists. Um, no. I think, and, and I have to say, it, scientists who are shouty and attention seeking um, lose credibility with me. Uh, I would rather somebody else, the campaigners or the ab- the advocacy people need to do the shouting uh, based hopefully uh, on real scientific data, um, which is sort of more, more sort of more my role really. But if you've got scientists out there who are taking advocacy positions and then you know that they're getting too <coughs> emotional mm. or too deeply into something, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. you've got to, as a scientist, you've got to be able to maintain that distance and not get so emotionally involved in your own work that you're not able to then mm. deal with criticism or uh, you know accept that you may not have got everything 100 percent right the first time around so there is a i think there's a really mm. difficult balance there mm.
1: Mm. i suppose there, yeah, is sure. to be, there is something to be said about um hearing the science straight from the scientist's mouth i suppose as well because i think if you hear it by a second source i, I suppose there are all these other concerns to play devil's advocate to my own point that I just made just then, that scientists can be perceived as evil, like you say, these evil white lab coats and big poofy hair with like flasks of bubbling fluid, trying to kill us all, kind of thing. So maybe I don't know. I think I lost my point because I contradicted myself halfway through it.
3: No, don't worry, that's part of good communications. Um, but the <laughs> this the narrative of the of the crazy scientists obviously is one that you know it's a staple of of, of fiction. Going right back to Frankenstein mm. or beyond, um, and it, it, it's definitely a, a one of the motivators of certainly for the anti-GMO scene. The, the mad scientist has been a central, you know, hence the Franken food and the you know the original throwback to that. Um, definitely there with Big Pharma, the conspiracies. You know, for there though, it's often there's often the assertion that there's a commercial interest. So they're not. So mm. the mad scientists are doing it because they're mad, or because they want to run the world or something, but. If there's a commercial interest, say a company's paying for your research, um, then it's that's why you're doing it. So the you know the motive, the perceived motivation, is a really important aspect of how you communicate scientific results.
2: Prepare yourself, Mark, for the musical extravaganza. Oh, no, we, we're of your not life. doing
0: it live again, are we? Oh, we no. No, we absolutely are. Oh, God's sake. I hate doing off. this. <laughs> we have a short theme tune to the rapid fire question round that we've, since the lockdown, we've been performing live uh, with all the lag and the joys of, of broadcasting That's over project. the internet. So sorry for this cacophony. <laughs> <laughs> all right, ready? All right, then. Count us in, Alex. Three, two, one, <laughs> and. It's time for the rapid fire... You've gone very, very slow compared to normal. All
1: right, okay, okay, let's...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know what time. I'm normally at the normal tempo. (laughs) Okay, let's go normal tempo. (laughs) Three, two, one, and... It's time for the rapid fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. (laughs) Okay. It's safe to say for the
2: listeners at home... Mark, you look like you are at the <laughs> front of Glastonbury.
1: It was thriving.
2: Dolly Parton walks out. You were living the dream. I yeah,
1: was about to do a stage
3: title that
1: one. Mark, quickfire questions. Action or rom com movie?
3: Oh, rom com. Hate action. Boring fight scenes. Boring, boring, boring.
1: Controversial.
3: <laughs> uh, Favourite dinosaur? Um, the feathered ones, whatever the names are. The ones that came became birds, Archaeopteryx. That
0: one. <laughs> that's yeah, how it's got one. a tattoo of an Archaeopteryx.
3: Yeah. That, Gary's got a tattoo of Archaeopteryx. I
0: do, just here. Yeah, big one. <laughs> if only this wasn't an audio <laughs> medium. I know.
3: That <laughs> <laughs> Lennon or McCartney. Oh, Lennon for sure. Oh. McCartney did, uh, as Lennon put it, "Granny music." Well, no, the Beatles were <laughs> amazing, <laughs> and the best music ever. Yes. since Beethoven.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Agreed.
3: Day
1: spent writing in your shed with a words deadline or day wandering around a farm talking with growers?
3: Oh, I spent many happy hours by myself in sheds. (laughs) (laughs) No further (laughs) questions (laughs) on that. Uh,
1: Fruit or vegetables?
3: Um, Vegetables. Very good for you. Easier to grow as well. Oh,
1: yeah?
3: Beer or wine? Oh, beer. Wine's always too sour.
1: Op-ed in the Times Justifying Genetic Editing Legislation Change or Afternoon Talking with Engaged Teenagers in a Webinar with Greta? Well, I've done
3: both. You have to choose between them. <laughs> yeah, oh, which was your favourite. <laughs> um, actually, the Greta teenagers thing was quite fun. So, yeah, I, I, lo- I actually like doing stuff, to working with um, younger people. Um, and, te- I don't know, talking to teenagers about gene- genetic editing would be my absolute ideal. Combine the two.
1: Ooh. Oh, okay. Uh, still or sparkling water?
3: Um, I like sparkling water, I have to say. Not from a plastic bottle, mind you.
0: <laughs> of course.
3: <laughs> hip hop or classic rock? Oh, classic rock. Hip hop's too, um, well, often quite <laughs> homophobic. I'm too woke for hip hop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Home cooked
3: meal or dinner out? Home cooked. I can't sit still for. Uh, the whole time it takes to eat a meal at a restaurant
2: Mm. that's also quite a mean question to ask in a lockdown alex
1: i know i'm just most of these are about food or water or some sort of drink (laughs) i don't know if you can tell what's on my mind when i was writing these (laughs) Mm. now we normally we normally end with a quite a strong question but we've got a few today so i'm going to go with this one and this is for you to keep keep it as succinct as possible but do feel free to take it wherever you want what's one thing in your career that you're really proud of
3: oh that's tough um well, I don't know if you could call it Korea but I did used to um, build tree houses to stop road protests and uh you know kind of I did my did my spell in the trenches let's say in the direct action environmental movement and I think you know you've got to if you've been able to stand up for what you believe in physically against the police or the bailiffs or whoever I think you've, those are did you get arrested? Uh, I was always a quick runner. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that is why I can't get behind direct action.
3: Why? Because everyone... <laughs> no, I mean, the, some of the anti GMO stuff we did, I still look back on kind of fondly. Uh, you know, lying face down in the, in the maze at, you know, two o'clock in the morning while police dogs are charging around and, you know, you can't beat it.
0: Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What's one question we've not asked you that you'd like to have been asked?
0: Oh,
3: uh, Lady Gaga or Dua Lipa? Go on Dua then. Lipa. <laughs> She's killing it, it really is isn't she? First female artist since 1955 to have three three uh, singles in the num in the top UK top ten.
1: Yeah. Having said that, Gaga's new single's pretty good as well.
3: You know, I like. I liked. I'm not sure about the comeback single. I liked her kind of you know bad romance type era. Um, still a mm. gym staple for me But um, the the Dua Lipa album I think yeah, is absolutely killing it It's great for home workouts
1: yeah, Get physical Especially one Get physical here <laughs> <laughs> Last question then What's the last film
3: that made you cry? Oh, probably lame
2: mm. Um
3: Although the film wasn't great Do you sing along? Oh yeah, I know every word <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great. Well, that was Thank a great much. rapid riot question round. That was one of my favourites. Absolutely. <laughs> um, for the last bit, I just want to bring it back to real, really back to agriculture. We had a you know, really good discussion about misinformation, but I want to know, kind of looking forward, what would you like to see change, I guess, over the next 10 years in agriculture specifically?
3: Interesting. Um, I, would like to see, <laughs> well, I would like to see a shift away from an- animal agriculture and towards more plant-based diets and foods. Um, so I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of the Impossible Burger and that whole thing. You don't need to have actual meat in burgers or a lot of mm-hmm. current meat products. Um, and I, so I want to see a food system which begins to spare more land for nature. I'm a big advocate of rewilding. I've done some work with uh, rewilding Britain here. And, you know, I'm, I live in the Welsh borders and I see how much damage sheep do ecologically. And people know about pesticides. Sheep are much worse than pesticides. In uh, I didn't know oh, that. Well, Wow. How so? Yeah, yeah. I, I, look, I can't prove okay. that quantitatively right now, here, but I mean, you see just the, <laughs> the ecological sub sort of strip mining that sheep do to all of the hills across the United Kingdom and many other places, and you think mm. the productivity of this is trivial. You know, there's very little calorific value coming from this, and yet huge, huge areas are denuded of all their biodiversity <laughs> and and carbon <carved laughs> sequestration potential and all the rest of it. So. That's... Mm. So
2: the the big kind of challenge to that, though, is the social aspect. So these are rural communities that have historically been farming for in this way or in a OK, it's more amplified, but they've, they've been doing this for generations. How would we then support those communities which struggle anyway because they're so rural? Well,
3: so are the coal miners, you know, and look what happened to them in the South Wales Valleys. Uh, these Those communities were completely destroyed and they're still suffering high unemployment and social deprivation to this day. So that's how not to do it. You know, you have to have a, a, yeah. tr- a transition. Um, and remember that a lot of public money is going into supporting farming. Right. This, none of this sheep farming would be happening if it wasn't supported by the taxpayer. And so the taxpayer has a legitimate right and interest to say, well, in that case, let's shift the priorities away. Uh, we need to, We definitely need to reduce stocking rates and to reduce the amount of sheep and livestock. But there's other things that people in rural areas can be doing to support rewilding, um, natural regeneration of trees, carbon sequestration, res- restoration of bogs, loads and loads of really important, useful things to be doing out there, um, which I think are uh, an exciting potential for, for rural communities, including places where I'm living now. So we've got rewilding groups springing up all over the place, and people are really interested and keen in what the what, what these can do. Um, so it's not about getting people out of the, uh, out of the countryside by any means. Um, but it's got to be a better way to to produce our food than, you know, destroying huge areas of natural habitat and biodiversity.
0: Mm, mm. And I guess that's something that everybody would agree on no matter kind of what side of rewilding or nobody wants to see the biodiversity kind of damaged and and wild land lost. Um, so I guess there's, there's got to be something we can all, the, the empty meme, something we can all agree on to kind of get that conversation. Yeah, and you've got, we've
3: got a lot of leverage because mm. we are exiting the European Union in case you've forgotten about that. And we therefore have to redesign <laughs> a, a, a you know rural payment system to farmers, which can support different objectives, public payments for public goods and carbon being one of the, and biodiversity being the two central ones. So mm. that system is already going to become operational. The agriculture bills going through Parliament in the UK and so on. So, you know, we we have an absolute right to to engage in that debate and to push for a system which is, delivers much better for the environment and continues to produce mm-hmm. food sustainably.
2: So, d- do you have other questions, Gary?
0: No, I was just going to ask about the Impossible Burger. Have you tried one?
3: Yes, yes. I had, when I was last ah. at Cornell, um, they they serve the Impossible Burger in one of the one of the canteens on campus. So, um, yeah, I've, had, I've wow. had had it on on a couple of occasions, and it's yeah. pretty much okay. it's pretty much like. I mean, it doesn't taste like meat, actually, because I've eaten real burgers too. Um, but it certainly, yeah. it's certainly, it's, it's, it's a good burger. I enjoyed it. And I think mm. I, I don't need a meat burger anymore. And the Impossible Burger is just fine. Um, and also, what, yeah. I like the company. I like their edginess. I like the fact that they didn't hide the GM stuff. The fact they made a virtue of it. Yes, this yeah, is yeah. a genetically modified microorganism, mm. which is making this hemoglobin, heme type stuff, which gives it the red. And they also even made a virtue of using GM soya. Saying they believe that was a more sustainable yeah. option, and uh, and it's it's good because that gives uh, ha- a sort of edgy youth type feel to it, yeah, which is yeah. very. Different have, they the any... <laughs> have they engaged
0: in any? Have they engaged in any pre bunking?
3: Oh, all the time. look they oh, yeah, really? They yeah, have, yeah. They have huge blazing rows with the uh, the anti GMO lobby, um, and they seem to enjoy yeah. it, which is good.
2: I've been having conversations about is how will the current. Um, global pandemic affect the way we see huge radical change so something like the reductions in flights was inconceivable how do you think we will get that kind of radical change for for climate change and agriculture and and things like you know these big pressing global issues for sustainability
3: yeah i mean everyone projects onto the covid pandemic their own personal preferences don't they and i I do that as well. So I look out of the window, see no contrails and think, oh, it was possible, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm. uh, clean air, Mm. um, the oil price has gone negative, no one wants oil. I mean, all of these things are sort of things that we want to happen um, in the, you know, the the green transition. Um, We don't Mm. want millions of people to be stuck out of work, locked under lockdown. I mean, in some ways, again, the analogy is, is there, you know, you've got this idea of lifestyle change. The lifestyle change is the lockdown, but ultimately you need the technological change, which is the the vaccines and the anti antivirals and stuff. So we we need both. And, and the the immediate lifestyle change, right? We've got to cut the demand for flying. We've got to stop getting on planes so much. But in the longer term, we're going to have to decarbonise aviation, and invent synthetic fuel, jet fuels or something, because there are there is always going to be enough demand for people to go and uh, travel around the world, just um, to, to, to a certain extent. It doesn't need to be all the time. And it doesn't need to be to the extent that we've been doing it so far. But we're going to have to decarbonize that as we are all the other sectors of the economy.
2: So this this concept of decarbonisation would be that you could fly and there wouldn't be as many emissions or you could um, eat food. I'm trying to think of decoupling examples, but that's something that you're a big proponent of, I think.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a proponent of the techno-fix i called you know, I signed this thing called the Eco Modernist Manifesto a few years ago because I thought it was a it was an important sort of statement of of the possible, or at least of, of an of of an optimistic take on the environmental challenge. That so we could we we can actually solve with current technologies, um most of the challenges that are out there. And if we invent better, you know, SMRs, nuclear power small modular nuclear power reactors, then there's you know, so many, there's so many new innovative technologies out there which could, could yield huge benefits in 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, and in the meantime, mm-hmm. yes, let's let's keep demand down on the flying and uh, the driving of, <laughs> of petrol cars so on and okay. so forth.
1: The Thing <laughs> explained Using only the 1,000 most commonly used English words. The Thing
0: Explainer. How are you so good at this? This is
1: The Thing Explainer. The thing explainer. The thing ex-
0: we, we finish every episode on another game, which is the Thousand Words. So this is a list of the thousand most commonly used English words and all we ask is you construct a short sentence um, which describes kind of your work uh, and we will attempt to do the same.
3: And how long is it going to take me to read these thousand words?
0: So Mark, we asked you to describe your work in using only the most commonly used one thousand English words. What did you have?
3: Well, since you don't have climate or weather, um, I was <laughs> left with showing people the future of our world for the, the Great. <laughs> <Greece program. laughs> uh,
0: I like it. I like it. Yes.
3: Interesting
1: that the English people aren't using the word weather enough when that's a common staple of our it conversation. It is We're basically,
3: yeah, all we have to talk about, right? So these thousand words are not arbitrary. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got it from somewhere. We got it from no, somewhere. No, I think it used in-
0: Common parlance from somewhere. It's not just the
3: weather, anyway. I mean, I've been talking about I don't know food supplies and classes and things, so maybe maybe it's okay just to be more
0: general.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Alex, Uh, I've got two. I put "Change the world by changing minds." Fight the lie before a problem. And I also put "New book out now."
0: (laughs) Very nice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You've just showed off, Alex. Mine sounds like a primary school child has written it, as ever. How to uh, how to tell stories to make people put less bad gas Uh, in the air. I
3: love it. Bad gas could be anything, yeah.
0: And I got campaigning for acceptance and understanding of science and technology. Mm. Stone cold silence.
2: So thank you for listening to this week's episode, which was quite wide ranging um, and perhaps not always on the direct science of feeding the world, but certainly was a next step away from that. So um, thank you for coming to speak with us, Mark.
3: Uh, I would say it's been my pleasure, but um, no, it's actually been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: No, you had to listen to Alex and Gary do that uh, that theme tune, and that was painful. So um, we're, we're thankful that, that you sat. pleasure. you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, never again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, do we say goodbye from everyone, Gary? Yes. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so it's goodbye from me, Hannah.
0: Goodbye from me, Gary.
3: Me, Alex. And goodbye from me, Mark.
2: Cue theme music.
1: You are listening to a podcast, but what is that
3: podcast?
1: It's the science of
2: feeding the world.
0: Thanks for listening to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. We would like it very much if you would like, subscribe and share. And if you want to get in touch, you can get us on Twitter at podcast, Or if you just search for the Science of Feeding the World on Instagram or Facebook, you'll get us there as well.